Father in heaven, as we arrive this morning with uh, the rain falling, we're reminded in Isaiah 55 of that promise that just as you send the rains from heaven to water this dry land and bring life, so you give us your word from heaven to water the parched ground of the human heart to bring life and to bring fruitfulness. And Father, we pray that you be doing that in our hearts and our lives this morning, that you be increasing our fruitfulness. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week, if you remember, we saw something of God's heart for restoration. The book of Ezra begins with God's people at a devastating low. They're in exile in Babylon. But at the same time, their home and their city and their livelihood and their temple back in Jerusalem lie in ruins. That is until Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. When God initiates this great return, when God moves the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, allowing God's people to go home to rebuild their city and their temple and their lives. And as we saw last week, the focus in chapter 1 and 2 was on the temple because God's main aim in bringing people home to himself is to restore them to a life of wholehearted worship. It's what he wants for his people today, to be renewed in faith and to be renewed in our worship to him. And so this week, as we watch this, this building program unfold, it does so in two main phases that you might be able to see with the headings in your Bible. Firstly, we have the rebuilding of the altar, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Then we have, secondly, the rebuilding of the temple itself, verse 7 through to 13. And then in chapter 4, as we read, the reality kicks in with a timely reminder that, that kingdom building work, gospel work, will always be met with opposition. Firstly, then, we have the rebuilding of the altar, which comes as something of a surprise, because as we've said already, the main focus in chapter one and two was on the temple, not on the altar. Now, I'm not much of a builder, uh, but I've seen enough grand designs to know that there is an order to a building project, i.e. you build the main house first, the primary dwelling goes up first, and only when the main house is complete do you sort out the landscaping, you level the ground and you sort out your flower beds and you put up your nice barbecue feature in the garden, in the corner of the garden, it always gets the sun. That's the pattern, isn't it? That's how it works. You put up the main house first and then the landscaping comes after. But in Ezra chapter three, that's not the case. Have a look down at verse two. Then Joshua son of Josadak and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and his associates began to build, not the temple, they began to build the altar. Which, as you can see from the diagram coming up on the screen, the altar was out in the temple courtyard, outside the main temple building itself. You could say in some ways it was part of the landscaping. In fact, before they even laid a stone in the temple, they're offering sacrifices on a completed altar. You can see that down in verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Now, in architectural terms, that seems a pretty bizarre way 
of doing things, but in theological terms, in spiritual terms, it makes perfect sense. The rebuilding of the altar comes before the rebuilding of the temple because our vertical relationship with the Lord comes before everything else. That's what the altar represents. It was the basis for their relationship with God. It was a place where sacrifices for sin were offered to enable sinful people to come back into the presence of a holy God. And the altar is a picture of Jesus. And the pattern for us today is no different. Before we give ourselves to temple building work, before we think about our own labor for the Lord, we need to make sure that we are walking well with him. We need to make sure that we are in close communion with Christ. The altar must be built before the temple. Our relationship with Jesus must come first. And we see that same principle worked out throughout the New Testament. Look at the words from, of the Lord Jesus to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3. These will be familiar words, I think. Here I am, says Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and eat with that person. It's a picture of fellowship and they with me. Now, I know some people use this verse in the context of evangelism, i.e. Jesus is knocking on the door of the heart of an unbeliever and he wants to come in. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. He's speaking to Christians. And he is calling them to renew their fellowship with the Lord, to put first things first, to return to their first love. You see, if we want to be a blessing to others, want to be a blessing to our families and to our children and to our friends and our colleagues and each other in the church here in Scoria, if we want to be effective in temple building, kingdom building work, then we need to invest firstly in our relationship with the Lord. The altar must be built before the temple. Our relationship with Jesus must come first. And so my question for you this morning is a simple one. Is your relationship with Jesus your first priority? Let me ask that question again. I'm going to let it hang for a moment. Is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, your first priority. Very easy to say yes, isn't it? But in reality, if you look at our lives, how we invest our time and our money and our relationships, all that we give, all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, is our relationship with Jesus our first priority? Well, back in Ezra chapter 3, we can see just how committed this faithful remnant were to their Lord. Look down at verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord. Despite what people were saying, despite what people were thinking, despite what people might do, they rebuilt the altar. They prioritized their relationship with their Lord, and so should we. No matter what people might say, no matter what people might think about us, no matter what people might do, however much the world outside may mock, 
Jesus must come first. And that's not just for our own sake, but it's for the sake of others as well. Because after we rebuild the altar, we are called also to rebuild the temple. That's how the flow of the passage works. And that brings us to our second point, rebuilding the temple. Look how verse 7 begins. Then, i.e. after the rebuilding of the altar, then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so they could bring logs from sea by Lebanon and Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8, they appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. After the rebuilding of the altar comes the rebuilding of the temple. And as we've heard already this morning, as we seek to apply this principle to our lives today of temple building, it's worth remembering that our own temple building program doesn't involve masons and carpenters and logs from Lebanon. It involves proclamation and prayer. It involves speaking of Christ. It involves sharing the gospel with this world. It involves praying for the glory of Christ, that hearts will be turned back to the Lord Jesus, that they would come to him and enjoy worshipping him as he created them to do. We're not called to build a physical temple. We're called to join Jesus as he builds his church. You see, the temple in the Old Testament was all about the presence and the glory of God. It was where God dwelt most supremely among his people. But of course, the temple was never meant to stand forever. It was just a shadow, just a shadow of a far greater reality to come, a reality that is fleshed out in two main ways in the New Testament. Firstly, in the person of Jesus. As we see in his dialogue with the Jews here in John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, Jesus is the true temple. The place or indeed the person in which the presence and the glory of God is most supremely manifest is the Lord Jesus. The temple was but a shadow. Jesus is the reality. And secondly, the temple is but a shadow of the church. You see, when Jesus left this world and ascended back into heaven, he gave the gift of his spirit to his church in order that his presence and his glory will continue to be visible not in a building but in his people we are god's new testament temple read these words from 1 peter chapter 2 didn't we last week as you come to him jesus the living stone alive rejected by humans but chosen by god and precious to him you also, like living stones, alive in Christ, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through 
Jesus Christ. You see, we do not need masons and carpenters and logs from Lebanon. We need a people who, by the grace of God, are committed to the proclamation of the gospel and to prayer, because that's how Jesus builds his church. That's New Testament temple building. We've sung it already, haven't we, with the actions. God used to dwell in a house among his people. Now he has a home. It's better than the first. Doesn't look like a building with a, with a steeple. Now he's living in the people of his church. Brick after brick. Remember the actions? Brick after brick. God is building his temple. Brick after brick. Making it strong. With Christ, the sure foundation, and his people as the stones. He's building a place he can live. Brick after brick. Jesus is building his church and he calls each one of us to be a part of his eternal building project. And back in Ezra chapter 3, we learn two things at least about the nature of this work. Number one, firstly, temple building is corporate. Have a look down at verse one. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Notice they didn't just assemble together. They assembled together as one. They're of one mind and one purpose, and that purpose was to build the temple for the glory of God. We see the same thing in verse 8. Have a look down. Second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed the Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Did you notice who's involved in the building? Middle of verse 8. All who return. Every single one of the faithful remnant, not just the leaders, not just a select few people, all of God's people have a responsibility to build the house of the Lord. Temple building is corporate. It is something that we do together as the people of God. And of course, as we saw in our, our recent series, we see that same principle fleshed out in the New Testament, the picture of the body. Body is the church. All of us, different members of one body, a oneness of mind, a oneness of purpose, different people, all needed, all necessary as we serve one another together for the glory of our one head, who is Jesus Christ. Firstly, temple building is corporate. It is something that we commit to together. And secondly, temple building is joyful. Have a look at verse 10 and 11. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. And do you know what song they sang? 
They sang the same song they sang back in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when the first temple under Solomon was completed. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Temple building work is joyful work. And here's the beautiful thing about these verses. Even though the building isn't yet complete, there is still cause for rejoicing along the way. Of course, in heaven, that will be the ultimate experience of joy when the whole universal church is gathered before the throne of glory, when God's building project, his church, is finished and complete in heaven. That will be the ultimate joy. But that does not mean that there won't be heartfelt rejoicing along the way when another lost sinner returns to the Lord. Celebrating it next week. Alison coming home to the Lord. What do we do? We rejoice together as Alison goes through the waters of baptism because another lost sinner has come home. Another living stone has been placed in the temple of God. And when another Christian believer perseveres through the, the hardship and the challenges of life and, and God keeps them and life's rough and it's hard and it's difficult, but God by his grace keeps them. And we rejoice together in God's keeping and preserving work. Temple building is joyful work, friends. So whatever this looks like for you today, get your trumpets and your cymbals ready. However you celebrate, however you rejoice, temple building work is joyful work. We should expect to see God do good things. We meet to talk about the future on Tuesday, to pray about what the Lord has in store. And I don't know about you, I am expectant. I'm expecting that God will do good things through his people because God is good and his love endures forever. Yet at the same time, we know that kingdom building work this side of heaven will also lead to weeping. See there in verse 12, that many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because people made so much noise and the sound could be heard far away. Here's the deal. If you commit with all of your heart to kingdom building work, it will result in both joy and weeping. What's the cause for weeping? In the verses before us, but it's got something to do with an unfavorable comparison between the first temple and the second, because it's those who remember the first temple. It's they who were weeping. It's they who are old enough to remember what was before. Now, the issue can't be what it looked like, because the second temple has not been finished yet. It's just a foundation stone. It's also not an issue of science. Because actually the dimensions of the second temple are equal to, if not greater, than the first temple. The issue, I think, surrounds the presence and the glory of God. You see, in the first temple, if you remember when the, the Ark of the Covenant 
was placed in the Holy of Holies. The glory cloud of the Lord descended and stayed above that temple. But now there is no ark. The ark's gone. The glory of the Lord will never rest on that second temple in the way that it rested in the first. And the older generations knew it. It is a discontinuity that points us forward to Jesus Christ, the full manifestation of the presence and the glory of God. And until we see him, until we look upon the Lord Jesus in the new creation, until we stand before our Savior, temple building work now, gospel work all in for Jesus, will be a mixture of joy and sorrow. Joy, because by the grace of God, we are building something that will last forever. Sorrow, because as we build, we continue to build in a world that is broken by sin. Firstly, we rebuild the altar as our priority. Jesus must come first. And then secondly, we rebuild the temple for the glory of God. And then lastly, we're reminded that all kingdom building work, this is the whole of chapter four, we read just a bit, will be met with opposition. Have a look at verse four and five, chapter four. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The word discouraged there in verse 4 literally means to weaken the hands. The opposition, of course, comes in different forms, in different ways, at different times, but its purpose is always the same, to weaken the hands of God's workforce. Look again at the words used in verse 5. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate them. And this continued all the way down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's 17 years of almost constant opposition, discouragement, and frustration. And the results, look forward to verse 24, end of chapter 4. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. A pretty startling end, isn't it? To chapter 4, the opposition was effective. Now, of course, Jesus will build his church. It's the promise that he makes to us in Matthew chapter 16. In the end, all opposition will give way to Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. But that doesn't mean that on the way, opposition at times will be effective. Here in Ezra chapter 4, the people put down their tools and give up. You see, relentless opposition as a way of wearing us down. And we need to be ready for that. And if you flick forward to the New Testament and 1 Peter chapter 5, we see where the root of all this opposition resides. Verse 8 and 9. Be alert, friends. Be alert and a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him, standing firm 
in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. As one commentator put it, we hear the roar in Ezra chapter 4. The lion that's spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 5, the evil one, our great enemy, we hear him roar in Ezra chapter 4. It is a chapter that exposes the subtle schemes of Satan as he seeks to discourage, undermine, oppose, and frustrate kingdom-building work at every turn. Our enemy will do whatever he can to weaken the hands of his workforce. And that's why we need to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6, in order that we might take our stand against the devil's schemes. And that section finishes, verse 18, with prayer. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. All, all, all. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle and we need God's help. And as we close in the context of Ezra chapter 3 and 4, can I suggest you two main ways that we should commit to praying for each other this morning, number one, that we would build the altar first. Will you pray that? For each of the fellowship here at Scoria, that we would put Jesus first, that we prioritize him above all other things in life. And then number two, that God would strengthen our hands. He would help us to keep going, keep working, keep building, Keep proclaiming and keep praying until Jesus comes again. And of course, on that glorious day, when Jesus Christ does return as promised from heaven, all remaining opposition will submit to him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He alone can strengthen our hands as we give ourselves to his work. Let me just take a moment to be still, and then I'm going to pray for us all in line with those two points that we finish with.